If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 45. And we are going to wrap up the Genesis series. We started this Genesis series back in January. I had a lot of plans for what this was going to look like and how it was going to unfold. Obviously, those plans were disrupted. And we sort of did the best we could with what, with what we had in the time that we had. So um, it, in an ideal world, this would have been done in person. And we could have um, you know, been looking at each other in the eyes when, when we did this. But, um, you know, say lovey, 2020. Anyway, so we're wrapping up the series today. And the, the, the book of Genesis closes with the story of Joseph. And the thing about the story of Joseph is it's very long. And I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when we entered into it. And really, this could be a whole like five, six series, five, six part series all by itself. And I did not want to do that. For one thing, I've heard a lot of sermons. I, I know lots of pastors who have already done that. There's not a whole lot of new ground, I think, that I could have covered that would have been interesting or new in any sort of way. So um, so what we did was two weeks ago, we looked at sort of the beginning of this Joseph story. And then last week, we took a weird like detour mid-story by talking about uh, Judah and Tamar. And so today, we're going to get back into the Joseph narrative and kind of close it out. So here is the, uh, the Spark Notes abbreviated version of the Joseph story. So Jacob has 12 sons and Joseph is, is Jacob's favorite. And at a certain point, but see the thing about Joseph is he's the 11th born and not even the firstborn. It's weirdly more understandable for the firstborn to be your favorite than for any of the other ones to be your favorite at this time if you're a father. So Joseph is not the firstborn. He's the 11th born. And so what is going on with Joseph now is Joseph has sort of become like the very obvious dad's favorite. In fact, uh, Jacob has made a ornate cloak for Joseph to wear, which is a source of major consternation for, for the brothers. And at a certain point, which we looked at two weeks ago, the brothers decide, what if we get rid of Joseph? And so while they're out working, Joseph comes to basically inspect and so he can go back and tattle to his dad, whatever it is that they're not doing right. And so while they're out there, they decide we're going to throw Joseph in a well, maybe kill him. But they decide not to kill him. After all, he is their brother. So they decide to sell him into slavery instead to a group of merchants who are going to, to Egypt. So the, the space between, so that's where we ended two weeks ago. So the space between that space and, and today is like there's a whole series of adventures that Joseph gets into. He, um, he ends up doing very well in, in someone's household. He ends up um, being falsely accused of a crime. He ends up going to jail. He spends some time in, in jail. And at a certain point, he ends up, again, very long story, he ends up um, pleasing the king of Egypt to, to such a degree that the king pardons him for all of his uh, alleged crimes and promotes him to a high status and changes his name. So there is now a famine in the land, and Joseph is in charge of overseeing food distribution during the famine, which is a pretty big job in Egypt. So Egypt, like this, what is at this point a global superpower that has most of the food supply, is is in in charge of whether or not neighboring places can get a hold of food. And Joseph is the guy in charge of who gets food and how much food they get. And of course, Joseph's brothers and father are still out there alive somewhere, and they're also experiencing a famine. And at a certain point, they end up going to Egypt to ask for food, fully believing that Joseph is dead. So they end up in Egypt, and they end up actually weirdly in front of Joseph, not knowing that it's Joseph. Joseph does a little bit of, like, I'm not sure what to think about the fact that my brothers who tried to kill me and then sold me into slavery are now just sitting here asking for my help and don't know that it's me. And so there's, like, this whole sort of back and forth. 
Joseph kind of reveals himself at a certain point, at which point the brothers probably at this moment have like this heart stopping, like, oh no, what's going to happen to us now? This brother of ours that we um, sold into slavery now has, now is the second most powerful person in the world. So what do we do now? And that's where we are. That's the, the short version of like seven chapters in Genesis. So we're going to look now at Genesis chapter 45, which is sort of like kind of the tail end of this story. If you're, if you have a Bible, you can look at it. If you are, if you have a, an app that has Bible verses on it, you can look at it there as well. So Genesis uh, chapter 45, verse one, it says, then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So Joseph is having this emotional moment because his brothers are sitting here like begging for his help. And it, and so he kind of breaks down. He can't keep up the facade anymore because they don't know that it's Joseph yet. And so it says, so there, um, so there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. So he's in his feelings, I guess you could say. So then in verse three, it says, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer because they were terrified at his presence, which, yeah, that makes a lot of sense that they would be. Then in verse four, it says, then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Like, you know, as it, it, just in case you had a different brother named Joseph that you didn't sell to Egypt, I'm that one. So he says, I'm the one you sold into Egypt. I don't know if you guys remember that. And it says, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you for a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now, hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and your herds and all you have, I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. So, so Joseph's like, listen, I need you to go back to our father who thinks I'm dead because you t that's what you told him. Tell him like, listen, Joseph's not dead. Funny story. We sold him into slavery, but hey, good news. We now have a food supply to last us for the rest of the famine. So let's not focus on the traumatic, violent deceit that we per perpetrated for the last like couple of decades and focus on food supply. So that's uh, where they're at now. So it says, you can see for yourselves and so can my brother Benjamin that it is really I who am speaking to you. And Benjamin is, is Joseph's only, the reason he points out Benjamin is because Benjamin is the only one who's younger than Joseph, but also Benjamin is the only one who has the same mother as Joseph. So um, so jo Joseph is sort of like relying on Benjamin as as the one the one person in the room who's, who definitely Joseph is not possibly mad at. And so then it says, uh, tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt, about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjam Benjamin and wept. The other brothers, not so much. And then it says, and Benjamin embracing him, embraced him weeping, and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. After, afterward, his brothers talked with him, which I bet, I bet they did. I bet they had quite a few uh, questions. You know, how, how are things? How are you? um kind of kind of conversation what an interesting conversation that must have been so this story 
contains so much violence and so much dehumanization and lying and the, the whole thing. And, and we looked a couple of weeks ago at just like the, the, the pattern, the recurring pattern of deceit and lying and violence and like covering up identities in order to gain something. And the story has so much of that recurring like in the patterns over and over and over again. And it ends, the whole story ends. Genesis, this is Genesis sort of drawing to a close. We're, we're getting close to the end of the whole book. And it ends with a moment in which peace is made, relationships are restored in spite of the violence and hostility that led us here. All the way back, in fact, we're, we're gonna look in a second, like all the way back, the patterns of Genesis have been violence, deceit, selfish ambition at the expense of others over and over and over again. But the whole thing kind of lands with, yeah, but in spite of all of that, we have the scene where these brothers who should be mortal enemies are making peace with each other. This is a massive breaking point or a massive breaking of some very old patterns. So the old pattern, what we saw all through the book of Genesis is this, this recurring pattern of deception, of internal deception or in, um, intentional deception for, for the purpose of self-gain or of self-preservation in some sort of sense. And it goes way, way back. Look all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. So in Genesis 3, like before anything bad so far has really even happened, just like the only thing that's happened is there is this tree and the people in the story have been told by God, don't eat from this tree. And then they did. And then in verse 8 of chapter 3, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He, the man, answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. So the first instance of any sort of breaking of healthy, um, life-giving, uh, of a healthy life-giving situation is there's hiding and there's covering up. In fact, it, what's interesting here is it says, I was naked and so I hid. But the, the first time we see this, the concept of this person being naked, it's not about like, oh my gosh, I'm not wearing any clothes. It's about something deeper. It's about something a lot more profound than that. So look, if you go back a little bit to um, verse 25 of chapter two, just a couple of verses up, it says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So the idea of not being exposed or not being covered up is, isn't just like, I don't want you to see me this way. It is like, I feel shame. It is, I, I don't want to be seen as who I am. And so this, this sort of going back and forth between covered and uncovered, naked and, and clothed is, is a lot more than just like, what am I wearing? It's, it's more about what, what of me do you want me to see? Like how much of myself am I willing to have be seen? And not just, not in a physical sense, but in, in like a human sense. And then if you jump a little further out uh, later in Genesis chapter 12, in Genesis 12, verse 10, uh, we have this story. It says, now there was a famine in the land. So again, there's a famine. And it says, and Abram went down to Egypt, which is where the Joseph story also takes place. It says, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake. And my life will be spared because of you. We looked at this, this story a while back. But so once again, or prior to the Joseph story, there's a famine in the land. People go looking in Egypt for some sort of refuge. But then in going to Egypt, 
Abram, like the patriarch of the whole story, enters into Egypt with deception and with um, with with a with a pretense of I will prosper as long as we keep this charade going for as long as possible. So. And by the way, Abraham does it again in chapter 20. So he doesn't even learn his lesson here. And in both situations, there's sort of, uh, there's, there's some harsh words spoken by God about this thing happening. So then later on, Jacob, so we're looking at the whole narrative of Genesis. So then later on, Jacob lies to his father and claims to be his own twin brother, Esau. Then Jacob's father-in-law lies to Jacob about which of his daughters Jacob is about to marry. And then Jacob's sons lie to him about Joseph being killed by a wild animal. And then Judah, which we saw last week, lies to Tamar about his intentions to keep her in the family after his sons die. This is a very old pattern over and over and over again. Throughout the book of Genesis, we see someone feeling exposed or someone feeling vulnerable. And what they do in that situation is they deceive, they lie, they cover up, they they create a false narrative in order to protect and preserve themselves or in order to gain something for themselves. So the deceptions and the fabrications that we see over and over and over again, it turns out those things are pretty corrosive. Like every single time this kind of thing happens, someone gets hurt and someone ends up like really bearing the, the brunt of, of what it is to be sort of a pawn in somebody else's false narrative. A lie or some sort of active deception can be corrosive, but it can also be a really heavy burden. So we have this old pattern that's established in Genesis over and over and over and over again. There's more actually that we didn't even have time to look at. But what we see constantly is people finding a way to get what they want, but the way they do it is by deceit and by hurting other people and by creating a false story to bolster whatever narrative it is that they're trying to bolster. So this is an old pattern. But Joseph, in the Joseph story, what we find at the end of the book of Genesis, the writer is trying to say here is there's a new pattern that we can adopt here instead. And in the new pattern, people are unburdened. Why does Joseph weep so loudly? Why is everyone, why, why is there just this weird sense of, in, in the moment of everyone is exposed at this, at this point, why in the story does it feel like, oh, there's this incredible wave of, okay, we don't, no one has to pretend anymore. These brothers don't have to keep up the lie that they told their dad. And yeah, dad's probably going to be pretty upset. But at the same time, they don't have to keep lying and they don't have to keep the charade going. And so the, the new pattern is that people are unburdened and that people are freed from these kinds of things. Again, going back to the, the whole story begins in Genesis 1 and 2 with a narrative that is about people who are not covered and feel no shame at being seen. They have nothing to hide. There's no pretense. There's no pretending. There is no, there is no sense of like false bravado that they have to put up. They are, they are fully exactly who they are. So the old pattern is I have to show you some sort of version of myself I have, to, I have to tell you a narrative to get you to like me, to trust me, to, to, to do the things that I want you to do to help me make more money or to become more powerful. I have to continue like these, these recurring patterns of deceit in order to keep that going. And the end of the story is, yeah, maybe that's not working. And may, maybe, maybe the whole thing has been broken for far too long. And the Joseph narrative is a way of saying, like, what if we could just like break that down and instead we could be unburdened by these, these false pretenses that we continue to sort of bolster up? So then, in, uh, if you go around, we're, we're just jumping all over the place. So in John chapter 8, Jesus is teaching his, his followers. And he says, in John chapter 8, verse 31, it says, To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, 
and the truth will set you free. There is there is some sort of exhale when when it comes to reality has been exposed. When because notice like the order of things happening. You will know my teachings, then you will know the truth, and then you will be free. There is something freeing about not having to pretend anymore and not participating in some sort of false corrosive narrative. So, and then if you go over to Mark chapter four, I realize, again, I realize we're, we're just all over the place. In Mark chapter four, verse 21, again, Jesus is teaching. He says, he, Jesus said to him, do not bring in a lamp to put under a bowl or a bed. Instead, do you put it, don't you put it on, a, on its stand for whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. And so what's going on here? The story begins in a place where we are at peace with one another. Going back to Genesis 1 and 2, there is peace. There is like we there is no burden of whatever it is that we're trying to hide. And where where we are seen and where we are known without needing to hide like there there is something life-giving about that kind of place that the the, that the whole story begins in and jesus in john 8 and in mark chapter 4 seems to be saying the story is moving back in that direction we're we're moving back in a direction of yeah the 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 false narratives it's just not it's just not working anymore maybe there's a better way so so that's so you have this old pattern of false pretense false narrative in a new pattern of maybe you don't have to live like that. Maybe, maybe you can be free from all the ways that you're hiding from yourself or from the people in your life. So then uh, the next pattern, the next old pattern that is sort of being exposed by the end of Genesis is the myth of redemptive violence. And in Genesis 37, Joseph's brothers have a long debate about whether or not it's better to kill Joseph or to sell him into slavery. They believe Joseph deserves violence. Why? Well, because Joseph is our dad's favorite, and none of us is going to get any sort of inheritance or attention or love until Joseph is out of the picture. And so they do something. They, they Basically, they try and decide like which violent thing is a better idea for us. But the pattern of violence here doesn't just start with Joseph's brothers. This, again, if you look at the whole book of Genesis, we've been seeing this violence take place over and over and over again. Go back to Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis 4, uh, in verse 8, you have these two brothers, Cain and Abel. And at a certain point, because of some sort of jealousy, Cain murders his brother Abel. And then is confronted by God about it. And in verse 8, it says, Now Cain said to, or I'm sorry, in verse 8, it says, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know. He replied, "Am I my brother's keeper?" So again, we have a false narrative. We have, like, we have something violent that has been done, and then there is some amount of deception that is covering up the violence. And then in, uh, so, so he says, "I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper?" The Lord said, "What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hands." And when it says your brother's blood cries out from the ground. That, that's sort of like this ancient way of saying, you, you haven't just killed this one person, you've ended his line. The blood doesn't belong on the ground. The blood belongs in your brother's veins, and it belongs in your brother's um, line of succession. But now it isn't in those places. It's on the ground. So it's, it's about like this, this spilt blood is about more than just like this one person is gone now. It, it's about, look at, the there's a whole story. There's a whole world 
that never got to exist. There's a whole story that never got to be told because of this one act of violence. And so we have this, this particular act of violence, but then notice at this point in the narrative, it's not like everybody else is like, well, that went really poorly, so we should never commit violence ever again. Instead, just a couple of generations later, in chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of, of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me. I have uh, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech is avenged 77 times. So instead of learning from this one particular act and saying, well, that was bad and we should never do it again, two generations later, Cain's direct descendant is like, not only will I kill somebody, I'm not even going to lie about it. Cain lied about it. Lamech wrote a song about it. Uh, I, I'm going to kill, I, I killed a guy, <laughs> I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die, is basically this. And if somebody else messes with me, I'll do the same to them. And so we've gone from one act of violence being covered up to a, an out-and-out bigger act of violence that is being celebrated by the person who committed the violence. So the cycle of violence started a long time ago. But when, but when Joseph has the power to repay his brothers with more violence, he doesn't choose to do it. Joseph is one of the most powerful people in the world, and his brothers are begging for their lives. This is the moment when Joseph can get his revenge, but he doesn't. He breaks the cycle. He looks all the way back to stories like Cain and Lamech and decides maybe there's a better way. Maybe we don't have to just live in this constant cycle of violence and repaying violence with more violence. In fact, the, the pattern is so old and so deeply embedded that even after all these things happened, I mean, you would think Genesis uh, could have ended in, in chapter 45. And I, I think most of us would have been like, that was a, that was a satisfyingly well-told story. But as it happens, we, we get a couple more chapters and some of, the, some of it is just sort of like lineages and like where people settle and <laughs> those sorts of like things that we would look at as almost kind of tedium. But there is this kind of weird thing at the end of Genesis 50 where you sort of see like, oh, the pattern has not left the brothers, even though Joseph has forgiven them and has welcomed them back and has said like, I'm not, I, even though I have this power, I'm not gonna repay violence with violence. The brothers are so deeply embedded in a world in which they only understand violence being repaid with violence. Look at Genesis chapter 50. Um, in Genesis 50, verse 15, it says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So like this whole time, they've been like pins and needles, like when, when will Joseph finally take his revenge? So then in verse 16, it says, so they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I, asked you, I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father, when their message came to Joseph, he wept. By the way, that's a lie, as far as we can tell, because there is no record of Jacob ever saying these words to anybody. So after Jacob dies, as far as we can tell, according to the book of Genesis, the brothers are so afraid that Joseph is finally going to take his violent revenge that they create a false narrative in order to protect themselves from what they assume is inevitable violence. Notice they are still stuck in the patterns. Just because they have received some amount of grace and truth and freedom, it doesn't mean that they have internalized it. 
they're still skeptical. They still, they still think Joseph is just as violent and vengeful and hateful as they are. And so they figure, okay, now that our dad is gone, this is when Joseph finally takes his revenge. And so they create a lie about like, well, our dad said like his, his one dying wish was that you wouldn't take your revenge on us, which by the way, again, not true. Like Jacob has like we, Jacob's, as far as we can tell, Jacob's last words are recorded in Genesis. These are not them. And, and so again, like they're, the brothers are so stuck in this old pattern that they don't know a way out. The only way they know to save themselves is to continue perpetrating the same pattern and to assume that Joseph is also stuck in the pattern of, of deceit and violence. So then if we keep going in Genesis 50, right after that, um, I should not have closed my Bible. Then in uh, Genesis 50, going into verse 18, and by the way, and again, Joseph receives this and he weeps. Why does he weep? Because he thought we were done with this. Like he thought like, no, 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 like we're, 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 we're good. Like you don't, the whole thing was about grace and redemption and starting over. Like the resurrection out of the death that was this old family pattern. So then in verse 10, it says, his, Joseph's brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph's brothers only understand a world in which people lie to get what they want, seek revenge whenever they feel entitled to it, and take whatever they want whenever they want it. The pattern is broken, and they don't even know how to live in a world that doesn't run on that pattern. Like the, the fuel that has, that has run the engine of the, of the whole world, as far as they're concerned, are these patterns. And Joseph is saying, I, I'm choosing not to, not to live in a world that, that has to play by those rules. I'm choosing to break the pattern. Sometimes when we are stuck in these violent patterns, we project those patterns onto everybody else and we fully expect other people to perpetrate them. Have you ever known somebody who will say something like, well, if that person gets the opportunity, they'll do X, Y, Z. And then it turns out that that wasn't necessarily true about the person they were talking about, but it actually was true about themselves. Because it turns out what, what we often do is we have a lot of these like negative impulses and patterns and tendencies that we carry around inside of us. And rather than dealing with those inside of us, we tend to look around the world and assume that everybody else is just as cynical or um, like embedded in these patterns as we are. And that's what happens with Joseph's brothers. Joseph's brothers know what they would do if they were Joseph, and they just assume that Joseph is going to do that too. They projected their own patterns onto Joseph. And Joseph is saying, yeah, yeah like we're, we're past that. We're not, we're not doing that. That, that. that isn't the world that I want to live in. So there are these two. So again, if, if we take a step back and we look at the whole narrative of Genesis, not just the Joseph story. The Joseph story is important because it's the final story in the book of Genesis. And so if you look at Genesis 1 all the way through 50 and you begin to sort of kind of trace, like, what is the arc of this whole thing going on that spans like multiple generations and different, um, different stories of different people groups interacting with each other for the first time and like people that we thought were supposed to be like moral heroes we kind of find out are a lot more deeply flawed than we thought if we step back and we look at the whole thing what we begin to spot is oh there are these patterns that were around the whole time there there are these consistent narrative threads that go from genesis 1 all the way to genesis 50. so there are two 
narratives, I think, is if you look at the whole book of Genesis and you begin to sort of spot like, okay, what, what exactly kind of world are we being invited to participate in as we read this book? I would argue that there are two dueling narratives that run through the whole book of Genesis. And, and narrative one is the narrative that violence and deception and cynicism are the only ways to thrive in the world. There, there is a way of viewing all of reality that is a zero-sum game, which is to say, I can only win if you lose. I can only succeed if you fail. I can only experience joy. I can only be happy if you are miserable. In this narrative, violence and chronic lying are completely okay because the goal isn't to bring something new and good into the world. The goal is to simply come out ahead and to dominate everybody else. If, if the only purpose is to win, then anything you do in order to win is completely permissible and completely, and completely within the bounds of, um, of acceptable behavior. Because if the goal is, is to dominate and to win and to be stronger or greater or whatever, then anything you do to achieve that goal is fine. And because that's a, that, that is a zero-sum game world. So that's the first narrative. The, the first narrative that we see playing all the way through from Cain and Abel to Lamech to Abraham lying a couple of different times to a couple of different kings about the, his, the nature of his relationship with Sarah to the same thing happening with Isaac to Jacob stealing things from his brother to, um, to Joseph's brother selling him into slavery to Judah throwing Tamar under the bus to all the stories in between that we didn't even have time to get to. If the goal is, I just want to come out on top, then anything we do to somebody else is fine. Because that narrative insists that violence and deception and cynicism are the only ways to thrive in the world. The goal is to come out on top. So then, the, the alternate conflicting, dueling narrative here, narrative two, which I think I would argue that Genesis is actually inviting us to embody, is the narrative that human beings are created with the capacity for goodness, for nonviolence and for honesty and for generosity and for decency towards one another. The, we, are, we are created with the capacity to make choices that are actually beneficial to other people. And we see that, again, all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, where we're told the very first thing we're told about humanity is that humanity is created in the image of God. And that God is, at, at God's core, a God of generosity and love and grace. And if we are created in that God's image, then we must also have that capacity. So the one narrative is do whatever you can to get ahead. Do whatever you can to, uh, to win, no matter who you crush, no matter who you hurt, no matter, no matter what kinds of lies you have to tell. And the other narrative is you don't have to live this way. You were created with the capacity to bring good, life-giving grace and peace into the world. So there are these two paths. And every single day, we are invited to choose which path we will travel. And, and this, this continues to bear itself out all through the scriptures. Look at the book of Galatians, chapter 5. In the book of Galatians, this writer Paul is writing to a church in the city called Galatia, and he kind of, in a more updated first century version of this, kind of invites people into the same mode of thinking of, look, there are these two narratives, and you can, there are these two paths, and you, every single day, get to choose which path you travel. So in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, Paul writes, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, 
watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Again, it's a very old story. The, the two, he, he, offered, he says there are these two paths. You can either love one another and serve one another, or you can crush one another. And then eventually someone more powerful than you will come along and crush you. So then in verse 16, it says, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desire of the flesh. Desire of the flesh in this context is, is in reference to, again, like power struggles. And so it says, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you were led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness and orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, like if everything you do is about what can I get out of this and how much can I benefit, no matter who gets hurt in the process, then, then there is something very, very dark. There is a dark narrative that you're participating in. And then he goes on. This is a very famous passage in verse 22 where he says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Paul is articulating a very old struggle. The struggle between what do I have to do in order to, to get by for myself, to gain for myself? And who do, is it okay that when I gain for myself, other people get hurt? Or is it possible that there is a better path to, tra to travel and the path that we're invited to travel is one that looks a lot like love and joy and peace and kindness and patience. And so we begin looking around and asking like, which narrative, which narrative do I want to be a part of? Which narrative do I want my kids to see me participating in? We are perpetually struggling or we are, we are perpetually caught in a struggle between our worst impulses and our greatest potentials. The story of Genesis from chapter one all the way through chapter 50 is a story about the patterns that are born out of that struggle between our worst impulses and our greatest potentials. Genesis isn't just a collection of random stories about people that happened thousands of years ago. The story of Genesis is a story about us. The, the dominant question of Genesis should never be, did this happen? The dominant question of Genesis, as we read it, the dominant question should be, does this happen? It's not, is this a, like, what is the historical account of these stories? Now, the point of, of Genesis is, in what ways does this story continue to happen? In what ways do we still see these paths and these patterns manifesting themselves in our world? In what ways do we see people championing violence and deception and cruelty? And in what ways do we find ourselves invited into a story that is actually about compassion and love and justice and grace and peace? So may we choose a path that brings more goodness and peace into the world and love and grace into the world. May we break patterns that are harmful and toxic. And instead, may we create new patterns of generosity and forgiveness and compassion. Every single day, every, time, every morning when you wake up, you, have, you are invited to choose which path you will travel. Will I travel the path of I'll, I'll get whatever I can for myself, no matter who it hurts. Or will I choose the path of, 
I will be the kind of person who embodies things like kindness and grace and love and peace and justice. Which path will we choose? Every single day, we are invited into one of these two stories. And Genesis is a reminder that the stories are very old. And we can choose which story we participate in whenever we want. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the acknowledgement of the two paths. May we, even in our darkest moments, may we find that we can see our way towards the better path. May we be people who reject things like violence and rage and hatred. May we find that we are not participating in a story in which it's okay to harm other people just so long as we get by. And instead, may we find that we are living in a story in which we are invited to be people who are kind and generous and loving, who offer grace and peace to others, who insist on justice for those who have been denied justice. May we find that we are embodying what Paul refers to as the fruits of the Spirit, and may we find that we are championing those things wherever we see them. In Jesus' name, amen.